Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Wednesday, the 7th of October, 1936, and in the vast Tasman Sea, southwest of Lord Howe Island, a strong northwesterly wind whips up waves and white caps. These conditions aren't cause for concern, but they mean rough riding for any small boat bound for Sydney. It's Thursday, the 8th of October, and the winds are now at half-gale strength, meaning bursts of up to 54 miles an hour. The rough following sea is a worry because it might swamp a small craft. It's Friday, the 9th of October, and the wind has swung around and is blowing hard from the south now. For a small launch, it'll be hard to make headway towards Sydney. It's Saturday, the 10th of October, and the wind has dropped. But now, there's a big southerly sea. It's Sunday, the 11th of October, and the Tasman's weather is getting worse. Strong southwesterly winds, thick rain squalls, and nasty, choppy seas. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part five of the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. I'm releasing installments weekly, but if you're a supporter of the show, you can hear the whole story right now, and see a photo gallery of the people we're talking about. As a supporter, you can also get access to two amazing side stories that came out of researching this episode. One's about an absolutely horrific 1909 shipwreck that happened north of Lord Howe Island, and the other is about an unsolved murder from 1927, which features one of the people you'll meet in this episode. Supporting only costs a few bucks a month. For information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, or just click the link in your show notes. On the 5th of September, 1936, when Mystery Island's crew had sailed for Lord Howe Island, it hadn't yet been reported that Wally Pankhurst had been missing for a week in his ship, Pup. 
This was the sister vessel to Brian Abbott's launch, Mystery Star, and Wally had spent the past three months battling his way north from Sydney towards Thursday Island. He'd been due at Bowen in North Queensland, but he hadn't arrived. Then, after ten days without word, Wally popped up alive and well. Wally's next article for Referee newspaper described how he'd been on Lindemann Island and then encountered foul weather before making it to Long Island, where he'd been put up by a friendly local. As usual, Wally made mention of how good the pup engine was and how it never once missed a beat. After receiving an enthusiastic welcome at Bowen, including being a guest at their fancy dress ball, Wally next made a 140-mile non-stop run up to Townsville. By the first week of October, Wally was on Magnetic Island, being entertained by Queensland's governor, who just happened to be visiting. Before Brian Abbott left Lord Howe Island on the 6th of October, he sent a radiogram to Mystery Island's leading lady, Jean Laidley, saying he expected to reach Sydney in four to eight days. Brian also sent a letter via the Marinda to his wife, Grace, saying he thought he'd hit the New South Wales coast in four days six at the most. Yet, to Mervyn Murphy, the film's sound recordist, he said he'd see him at the Man of War Steps in Sydney on the 17th of October. This was put forward to suggest that Brian had thought the trip might take as long as 11 days. What's more likely is he said this when he'd planned to leave a few days after the 6th. In any case, there was no need for alarm on Thursday the 8th of October in Sydney. Yet, Brian and Leslie Hay Simpson's loved ones were on edge. The Labor Daily newspaper that day printed a photo of Mystery Star above a little article headlined, Anxiety for Adventurers. The piece included the first intimation suggesting that Leslie Hay Simpson hadn't been entirely confident. Quote, Simpson has entrusted letters to members of the company to be posted in Sydney if he and Abbott do not arrive within 14 days. Even so, the majority of newspaper articles insisted there was no need for anxiety. By the weekend, as the weather got worse and worse over the Tasman, fears mounted. The film's producer, Jack Bruce, said if the men weren't accounted for by the following day, the company would consider chartering a search plane. Speaking to Labor Daily on Monday the 12th, cameraman George Malcolm said, We're hoping that they have landed somewhere along the coast but cannot get into communication with us. If there is no word tomorrow, the plane goes out immediately. Both Jack Bruce and George Malcolm made it clear that Brian and Leslie had undertaken this adventure against all advice. On that Monday morning, the Deputy Director of Navigation, Captain Norman Roscrooge, sent a wireless message to all ships on the coast to keep a lookout for Mystery Star. The next day, the Dutch steamer Van Rees, on the way to Sydney from Noumea, heard this and as it was on a similar course to Mystery Star, its captain and officers kept a sharp watch but heavy squalls meant they could have passed within a mile or two of Brian and Leslie and not seen them. On that Monday night, Grace, Brian's wife, went to radio station 2UW to talk to Brian and to Leslie. Not that they could talk back. The next day, she told reporters, quote, Last night, I broadcast messages to the Mystery Star. They have a battery receiving set aboard and probably would be listening. I gave Brian a cheery message and weather information. 2UW would keep broadcasting regular messages to the men to update them on any evolving search plan. What Grace and 2UW didn't know yet, because sound engineer Mervyn Murphy hadn't thought to tell anyone, was that Brian 
didn't have a radio at all. They'd tested it on Lord Howe Island, and finding it was faulty and only received static, Brian had removed it from Mystery Star as dead weight. That Tuesday, Grace also told reporters why she was so worried already. Quote, In a letter to me from Lord Howe Island, my husband told me that he expected to cover the distance to the New South Wales coast in four days, but possibly the voyage would stretch to five or six days. He told me that as soon as he touched the coast, no matter where it was, he would get in touch with me. They were now at the start of day seven. Grace was ready to take matters into her own hands. Quote, Mr. Ernie Colliby is standing by to assist me, and if I do not hear anything today, I expect that we will set off by plane in the morning to make a search. When Grace said Mr. Ernie Colliby, Sydney newspaper readers knew who she was talking about. Ernie Colliby was a high-flying celebrity hero. After a couple of fatal shark attacks in early 1934 in Sydney and a lot of sensational newspaper articles, the city citizens were worried about what next summer would bring, especially as no one could agree on whether or not to erect netting on all beaches. Realising there was a publicity opportunity in performing a public service, 2UW in early December 1934 declared that one of its announcers, Ernie Colliby, would each weekend fly a shark-spotting gypsy moth biplane over beaches from Mona Vale to Maroubra. If the surf was clear, Ernie would trail a green streamer. But if he spotted white death lurking in the water below, he'd send out a red streamer. Ernie would also report via radio back to 2UW, and the station would then quickly broadcast a warning, which though meant for the relevant surf club, would also incidentally make for sensational listening for everyone else tuned in across the city. Ernie would circle his plane over the shark or sharks so those in the water and on the beach knew where the danger was and what direction it was travelling. As an additional heroic service, should surf rescuers be having trouble reaching a swimmer in distress, their surf club could radio Ernie and he'd fly to the scene at top speed to drop a lifebuoy. Performing these duties in the early days of aviation was really taking your life in your hands. In February 1935, filming a demonstration at Cronulla for the newsreel cameras, Ernie swooped in low and one of his wings clipped a breaker. His gypsy moth smashed into the surf in front of thousands of shocked beachgoers. Ernie and his passenger were rescued by surfboats taking part in the demonstration and were lucky to escape uninjured from the mangled plane. But it was a close thing, with the passenger at one point trapped underwater with a wire wrapped around his neck as Ernie tried to free him. Just a month later, flying over Narrabeen, Ernie spotted sharks and gave the signal. Then, his engine started overheating, so he made a forced landing on the beach. Once the engine had cooled down, Ernie tried to take off to resume his duties. But his makeshift sandy runway wasn't long enough, so when he lifted into the air, a wave clipped his wheels and his plane flipped into about three feet of water. Ernie and another passenger again escaped injury and were again helped from the damaged plane by people who'd fortunately been nearby. They say disasters come in threes, and a month later, Sunday the 14th of April 1935, Ernie and yet another passenger were overharboard when his latest plane, an American Eagle, got into trouble. With the engine spluttering and cutting out, Ernie knew he had to make another forced landing, so he flew towards a nearby park. 
but boys were playing cricket where he hoped to touch down. Playing losing altitude, Ernie circled just 80 feet off the ground and yelled for the kids to clear out. The boys ran for it. As Ernie tried to turn back, his engine died and his plane went into an abrupt nosedive. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, The machine struck the ground with a deafening crash, burying its nose and propeller in the soft earth and shattering the wings. The fuselage was perpendicular to the ground. Ernie and his passenger were strapped into their seats in the wreckage. People who had seen the crash flocked to help them. The passenger got off with a fractured leg and cuts. But Ernie was in a critical condition, with facial lacerations, a suspected fractured skull, a chest full of broken ribs and severe internal injuries. He was touch and go for a few days. Three months later, Ernie Collaby was back behind a microphone at 2UW. And by October 1935, he was back in another plane, able that month to warn hundreds of bathers at Tamarama that a 13-foot shark was bearing down on them. Ernie Collaby flew that summer and into autumn without coming to any further grief. Now, he was tempting fate again by volunteering to conduct an aerial search in his Clem Eagle plane from the Old Bar Aerodrome up near Taree. Grace would be his passenger and spotter. They'd search out to sea as far as return range would allow. Under perfect conditions, that might be 650 miles, but conditions over the Tasman Sea were far from perfect. Terrible weather meant a lower chance of seeing Mystery Star, and it also meant a higher chance of crashing. If Ernie and Grace went down at sea, they were as good as dead. There'd be no surf rescuers or beachgoers to pluck them from the wreckage. Before approving their plan, two UW's directors wanted to wait to see if the Minister of Defence would authorise Air Force planes for a search. Unnecessarily losing a radio announcer and a movie star's wife wouldn't be a good look for the radio station, or for the RAAF whose inaction had made a private search necessary. Arthur Titterton, 32 years old, was a businessman and co-director in the Mastercraft Film Corporation. This had been formed in 1934 with Mystery Island's producer Jack Bruce, legendary director Raymond Longford and others including Arthur's brother-in-law Leslie Hay Simpson. Pioneering talkie producer and director Frank Thring had then come on board and they were set to build a studio and take their place as a big part of Sydney being, as the Sydney Morning Herald called it, Australia's Hollywood. 1936 had begun as a bit of a lark for Arthur Titterton and Leslie Hay Simpson, with the two men heading off on a boys' own adventure looking for a mysterious gold mine. The Daily Telegraph reported in February the men found, quote, The road ended abruptly and ponies were unavailable, so they had to return without a nugget to show for their pains. Pain was what lay ahead. By May that year, the Mastercraft Film Corporation was unravelling. Raymond Longford was suing Arthur, Leslie, Jack Bruce and others for supposedly defaming him in a prospectus. Then, in mid-June, Frank Thring, who'd been doing talent and distribution deals for the company in Hollywood, arrived back in Melbourne seriously ill, and he died on the 1st of July. The year had been a stressful one for Arthur Titterton, and now his friend, business partner and brother-in-law, Leslie Hay Simpson, was missing on the Tasman. 
Arthur Titterton stepped up to represent the Simpson family, and he was, like Grace, to prove a formidable advocate in the face of initial official indifference. On the night of Wednesday the 14th of October, Arthur spoke with Sir Robert Archdale Parkhill, Minister of Defence, asking that RAAF plans be scrambled to look for Mystery Star. The Minister, an extremely conservative chap, mocked for dressing like a dandy and speaking with a fake Oxford accent, said he'd do what he could, but this quickly proved to be pretty much nothing. Archdale Parkhill was an adept press manipulator, but he'd met his match in Arthur and Grace. Speaking to reporters, Arthur said, quote, I applied last night for an RAAF plane to go out and search, but was told that no machine suitable for the task was available. Arthur knew this wasn't true. Just a year ago, July 1935, the federal government had hugely expanded the RAAF's capabilities, and this included the acquisition of 24 new Seagull amphibian planes. They'd made a big deal of it, so why weren't these aircraft being used to try to find Mystery Star? Most likely is that Archdale Park Hill simply didn't want to risk air crews on a dangerous search. But in giving his lame excuse that no planes were available, he'd given Arthur Titterton ammunition. Arthur told reporters, quote, I feel certain that if I can get in touch with the group captain at Richmond and obtain his assurance that a suitable plane is available, I will be able to get permission for an RAAF plane to search. He continued, Attempts have been made to charter a seaplane, but I have been told there is not a seaplane in Sydney today. A land plane will be of little use. It has not the range and can only patrol up and down the coast. That, we think, will be of little value. What we want is a machine that can get right out into the Tasman, where we think the Mystery Star is drifting. To send men into the Tasman in a land plane would be risking more lives. Arthur was putting pressure on the Minister of Defence, and Grace would soon add to it by insisting that she was ready to fly out with Ernie Collaby. Newspaper reports had provided differing accounts of how much fuel Mystery Star was carrying. Arthur Titterton sought confirmation from Lord Howe Island. The return radiogram message said 48 gallons, which they believed was enough for eight and a half days. By they, it's likely what was meant was that this was what Brian Abbott had told the islanders. Arthur Titterton thought that was overly optimistic, quote, more than likely, this quantity had been consumed days ago by the engine, leaving the men drifting perhaps in mid-ocean, running short of provisions and water. While he was turning up the urgency, trying to get the RAAF to act, Mystery Star's builder and engine designer, Graham Chapman, was far more sanguine. He said the boat had enough petrol for at least 10 days. Of course, his calculations were based on perfect conditions. Further, Mr Chapman said, if they did run out of fuel, they could use the leg of mutton sail, which would also make the boat far more visible to any searchers. Mr Chapman offered reassurances to the Sydney Morning Herald's readers, telling the paper how well Brian had prepared for the voyage and that with its sturdy construction and buoyancy tanks, Mystery Star was unsinkable. As evidence of his claims, Mr Chapman pointed to Wally Pankhurst who, right then in the pup, was making solid progress towards Thursday Island after four months at sea. Other maritime commentators pointed out that the 10-foot sail on Mystery Star would be useless for making headway in southerly winds. As for increasing Mystery Star's visibility, the sea was getting so big the sail might not even be seen above the waves. The Sun sought Gower Wilson for comment. 
The paper paraphrased him, quote, The journey should have been covered in several days, he said, but the stretch of water from Sydney to Lord Howe Island was one of the worst possible. Currents and changeable winds made it very difficult. Even so, Gower offered a hopeful note saying the bad weather had probably simply delayed Mystery Star and put it off course. While he'd been against the voyage, he still thought that Brian and Leslie would turn up safely. On Thursday and into Thursday night, Grace and Arthur were relentless in their pursuit of RAAF action. He drove out to Richmond Air Base to see for himself that there were planes available. She spent hours making trunk calls until she tracked down Sir Archdale Park Hill at Barrel. Grace applied the pressure by telling Labour Daily, quote, He said there were no flying boats at hand to search and promised that he would see if a Gannett plane could be secured. But this causes further waiting. I think that Station 2UW may offer their plane to make a search when the directors meet today. If Grace was to fly and die because of federal government inaction, it could be a national scandal. Labor Daily added to the pressure by saying it knew two amphibian planes were performing duties right then on the north coast. It said it also knew there were aircraft at Richmond Air Base that were suitable for a sea search. Clearly feeling the pressure, Sir Archdale Parkhill went from Barrel to Canberra to see the Prime Minister Joseph Lyons. Suddenly, it was all hands on controls and on deck. The RAAF would be in the air as soon as possible, and the Royal Australian Navy destroyer Waterhen would also be sent out to search. Two Seagull amphibian planes took off from Richmond Air Base early on Friday morning. These recently delivered biplanes had a range of 600 miles. While safer over water than Ernie Collaby's land plane, the risks of such a mission were still substantial. In 1938, four men would die in a seagull doing a coastal search for missing Brisbane woman Marjorie Norval, as we heard in episode 4 of season 1. Indeed, a seagull flying out that morning looking for Mystery Star developed engine trouble and had to make a forced landing on the Hawkesbury River. A replacement seagull and crew took off immediately from Richmond. The speed of that had to make Grace, Arthur and all of Brian and Leslie's loved ones wonder why there'd been such a delay in the first place. Valuable days had now been lost. The destroyer Waterhen was out through Sydney Heads by 2pm and surging northeast towards Lord Howe Island. A further plane, a Gannett, was recalled from geophysical survey work in the Northern Territory to its home base at Laverton in Melbourne. This monoplane was equipped with a wireless radio and then flew up to Richmond. It started its search flights at 5 on Saturday morning. Six hours after that, Marinda sailed out of Sydney on its regular island trip, its captain and officers saying they'd be keeping a constant watch for Mystery Star. So, in the end, Grace didn't fly out with Ernie Collaby, which, given how often he and his passengers had gone down, may very well have spared their lives. The Royal Australian Navy's destroyer Waterhen was a big ship, 312 feet long, with a beam of 30 feet and a draft of 11 feet. It carried 128 personnel, who affectionately called the vessel Chook. Chook was to search from approximately 100 miles offshore to 100 miles beyond that, all the way up to Lord Howe Island. At night, it would use searchlights, and multiple watchers would look for flares. Marinda was to sail up the centre of that search area. 
Meanwhile, the planes would cover from shore to 100 miles out and up to 150 miles north of Sydney. They'd also fly 30 miles south. Marinda's master for this voyage was Captain Richard Perry, who, thanks to his time on this steamer and Macambo, was said to know more about the Tasman Sea than anyone else. He believed Mystery Star would have been carried south. Otherwise, it would have been spotted by regular coastal shipping. Gower Wilson, who also had a wealth of Tasman Sea experience, had come to the same conclusion. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Mr. Wilson said that it was his opinion the men had been carried by the current, which normally sets to the southward between Lord Howe Island and Australia, far to the south of their proposed course. Otherwise, he said, Mystery Star would have reached the coast by now. So, these two men, who between them had a wealth of experience, both said the search was focusing on the wrong area. The RAAF and the Royal Australian Navy didn't change strategy. On Saturday, the Sun quoted Jean Laidley saying of Mystery Star, I hated the sight of the launch itself. As I thought it was too small, I refused to have anything to do with it, even to voyaging about the island. Jean told the paper she'd pleaded with Brian and Leslie before she left the island not to make the trip, but it had been to no avail. The Sun also spoke to Grace, who told them she'd tried to talk Brian out of the voyage before he'd left for Lord Howe Island. Quote, Though I tried to dissuade my husband, I knew all along that he would make the trip. His love of the sea is so deep that I was sure he would not be able to resist the lure of the adventure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The search for Mystery Star dominated the Sunday Sun's front page. A Sun journalist on the water hen had radioed through his report. And even though he was on a big destroyer, the trip to Lord Howe Island was still an adventure. Quote, We are ploughing through shark-infested waters at 18 knots for the south of Lord Howe Island. Now, as darkness descends, we are nearing the end of 24 hours actual searching for Abbott and Hay Simpson, whose plight, if they are still alive, must be critical. The reporter detailed the zigzagging route water hen had taken north of Sydney and how it had fought a southerly current. Quote, if the men are afloat, there is just a chance we will pick them up. But if they were capsized, they must have suffered a shocking fate, for we passed nearly a dozen big sharks sunning themselves on the surface within a few yards of the destroyer. This afternoon, a tiger shark was swept along the destroyer's side. One of the propellers caught it, and the men on watch aft saw the striped body thrown up to fall back writhing in the tumbling wake. Killers, too, were attacking a whale. The weather had been kind to begin with, but since this afternoon, quote, Now we are hounding over white-crested rollers. Men look at one of the water hen's boats about the size of the mystery star and ask each other, what chance would they have after having been 10 days adrift in it? Chook got within sight of Lord Howe Island around 5 on Sunday morning and then turned around to search its way back to Sydney. The weather got far worse on Sunday. 
from the Sun Reporter's next article, quote, At nightfall, the wind was screaming through the ship and spray was sweeping right across the deck. Every hour, the gale grew worse until the water hen was almost on her beam ends and everything movable was flying around the ship. Spray during the evening swept right across the decks and over the torpedo tubs and the crew had to use lifelines in moving from place to place. A few hours after midnight, quote, the gale had changed from northeast to westerly and the destroyer was diving into big head seas. One sea swept right over the bridge. Water hen had to slow to six knots. Now, the very best they could hope for was seeing Mystery Star on the crest of one of these huge waves. The Sun's reporter said, quote, It would have been difficult to realise what a night of terror a small craft would have had. Arriving in Sydney late Monday morning, the men of the Water Hen had seen nothing of Mystery Star in their 1,200 miles of searching. Over the weekend, the three RAAF planes had covered 18,000 square miles, and they too hadn't seen anything. Same went for Marinda. Having reached Lord Howe Island, the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, Captain Perry gave no hope for the survival of the craft, which he described as most unsuitable for the journey. That day, the Daily Telegraph printed a photo from Lord Howe Island of Brian standing in the shallow lagoon next to Mystery Star. The caption read, Sailors are asking, could this small launch have survived the heavy seas which have been running in the Tasman Sea for days past? The answer was almost definitely no. After nearly two weeks, there was no question Mystery Star was without fuel. Their food and water supply would also have been exhausted. If they were still alive, the only way they could sustain themselves would be by collecting rainwater and catching fish. The Sydney Morning Herald reported experts thought the boat could still be afloat thanks to those buoyancy tanks. And on Monday, Grace told reporters, quote, I wouldn't dream of giving up hope as I have such faith in Brian's ability to carry it through. Brian's mother, Eileen, stayed home at DY, hoping for the phone to ring with good news. Her husband, Brian's father, Dr. Harry Ricard Bell, put on a brave face when talking to the Sydney Morning Herald. The paper reported that, quote, he had implicit faith in his son's resource in the face of danger. Dr. Bell said that his son, in addition to having experience at sea, had always been a keen yachtsman and was seldom without a boat of some description. Dr. Ricard Bell gave a brief account of Brian's canoe adventure in Queensland five years earlier. Quote, the canoe was wrecked several times and when it was eventually smashed beyond repair on a desolate section of the Queensland coast, it had taken his son and his companion seven days to reach the nearest habitation. For the last three days, they had gone without water. Dr. Ricard Bell had recently spoken to Brian's canoe buddy, Charles Boswava, who, quote, had expressed complete confidence in his ability to bring the small craft through. He described him as a man of iron nerve, uncanny endurance and unfailing resource. Dr. Ricard Bell thanked the Air Force and Navy for searching for Mystery Star and asked that planes keep flying. They did, for the last time, on Tuesday the 20th of October. That night, a friend of Brian's, a chap named Colin Atterwill, came forward to say all these worries were for nothing. That was because Brian was almost certainly bound for New Guinea. Some years ago, Colin said, his mate had talked of making a long sea voyage there in a small vessel. Brian's idea had been to do it under sail and conserve petrol for passage through reefs or for when there was no wind. Colin Atterwall said, quote, 
I think that it is a waste of time continuing to search off the coast. I think that it is more than possible that Abbott has changed his mind to fulfil his long-conceived scheme for a northward trip. I feel confident that he will turn up in another fortnight with a beard and a smile. The problem with this, of course, was that Mystery Star's sail was completely unsuitable for such a voyage, and the water, food and fuel supplies they'd taken were entirely insufficient. Grace said she didn't believe this theory, quote, I'm quite sure that my husband would not dream of undertaking such a venture without first consulting me, knowing how uneasy I was about the Sydney trip. But perhaps Brian and Leslie were bound for New Guinea anyway. Newspapers floated a new theory on Thursday the 22nd of October. This was that the men had gotten into some trouble in Mystery Star and had been picked up by the Yawl Olive, which had left Sydney on the 8th of October and was bound for Port Moresby. The captain of the Olive had told friends he intended to chart a course roughly 150 miles from Sydney in the direction of Norfolk Island, from which he hoped favourable winds would get him to Port Moresby within three weeks. Olive didn't have a radio, so Brian and Leslie's rescue wouldn't be confirmed until it reached New Guinea. With the search officially called off, Grace implored the police commissioners of both New South Wales and Queensland to alert coastal stations to the possibility the men had been shipwrecked in some remote spot, were possibly injured and unable to get to civilization. Word was passed to officers to be on the lookout for any sign that might point to this. It was only now that the Australian Women's Weekly published Brian's article about filming Mystery Island and his brief letter saying that he was planning a very adventurous voyage but wanted it kept secret until it was underway. The Australian Women's Weekly noted, quote, No hint was given in the letter as to the reason for this strange request. The article, it said, revealed, quote, A cheerful nature imbued with a spirit of adventure. We heard some of this article in the last instalment, but it had also included this concluding reflection from Brian, which now felt like haunting words from beyond his watery grave. Quote, In our own ways, each of us has become a part of this, our own mystery island, and our work to date has already shown that by becoming imbued with this appropriate atmosphere, we have justified the company's decision not to stay at home and fake the whole thing. We don't need to imagine ourselves in our parts on an imaginary island. We live the characters we play. And Mystery Island is Mystery Island. The Australian Women's Weekly published a Sam Hood photo of Brian and Grace beaming at each other on the deck of Marinda in the spring sunshine, neither of them knowing what lay ahead. While poignant, this wasn't the last photo of Brian Abbott. There was, of course, the entire Mystery Island film and numerous production stills and those photos of him on the lagoon in Mystery Star, which had been meant to accompany articles about his triumphant voyage from Lord Howe Island to Sydney. But what seems to be the very last image of him appeared in the Daily Telegraph on Tuesday, the 27th of October. It showed Brian standing in Mystery Star, in shorts and a singlet, knife on his belt, cap on his head, reaching up to take that bag of mail from Lord Howe Island's postmaster on the jetty. This was just hours before he and Leslie set sail. In the corner of the photo are visible two other people. One's a man. We can only see his chin, chest, shoulders and part of his left arm in long sleeves. The other person is visible only as a hand, and that hand is gripping the man's arm so tensely the shirt material is bunched tightly. 
The same day that this was printed, the Sydney Morning Herald ran a quote from a Sydney man named Mr R. Allot, who'd been on Lord Howe Island to witness Mystery Star's departure. He told the paper, quote, Abbott seemed satisfied that he would complete the journey. Simpson did not seem so sure. Most of the islanders seemed to think that it was a foolhardy idea. From Mr Allot's account, it seemed like locals warned against this voyage until the very last moment. Quote, Nearly everyone present when it departed advised the two men against the trip, but Abbott decided to set out. He went on. There seemed to be only about nine inches of freeboard at the stern when it was fully loaded. Nine inches between Brian at the tiller and the waters of the Tasman Sea. Mr Allot said of the craft, The mystery star looked like a little cockle shell. It was a little cockle shell that left the lagoon and puttered southwest into the darkness, never to be seen again. So, what had become of Mystery Star? As we heard in the fate of Gordon Doherty in Tasmania, even in calm conditions, a mistake in handling by the experienced Brian or the novice Leslie Hay Simpson could have seen the boat capsize. While it was designed to right itself, Injury, current or waves might have prevented one or both men from getting back aboard. If that pup engine had developed problems, which did play a part in Gordon's death, Mystery Star, with its useless sail, would have been at the mercy of ever-worsening winds and seas. Mystery Star could have rolled and capsized and righted, and then rolled and capsized and righted over and over. Whoever was in the cockpit might have been sucked into the sea. Whoever was in the cabin might have been trapped to drown. If Mystery Star hadn't succumbed to these fates, if the engine had kept on going and going, and if it had successfully ridden the waves, then the little boat might, as Gower Wilson and Captain Perry believed, have been swept ever southwards until it ran out of fuel. Missed by search planes and ships, Brian and Leslie then might have spent weeks hoping for rescue as they succumbed to starvation and dehydration. By contrast, their end could have been far more sudden and violent. As we've heard, Wally Pankhurst's pup was nearly smashed to matchsticks by whales. If Brian and Leslie had gotten close to the Australian coast by sailing directly west for Port Macquarie, this would have placed them in the middle of the migration known as the Humpback Highway. Another possibility was that the 48 gallons of fuel they'd carried had exploded. Early in the film Mystery Island, Brian's character is happy that his tobacco and matches have survived the ship sinking in a waterproof container. No doubt, Brian would have packed such so he could enjoy a smoke on the water. And, as that photo on the lagoon showed, he didn't seem to worry about having a ciggy in one hand and a petrol can in the other. Even without Brian lighting up and blowing up Mystery Star, carrying petrol in quantity was a known danger because fumes could leak, undetected above the smell of the engine, and a single spark in an enclosed cabin could cause an explosion. Brian and Leslie's people would have been consumed by such scenarios, but they also entertained other possibilities. There was the chance Mystery Star was still afloat and the men were living on fish and rainwater. There was still a chance they were doing the same on some remote spot of the New South Wales coast after being shipwrecked. Lord Howe Islanders had looked to the horizon for years and hoped to see the sylph return. For Brian and Leslie's family and friends, hope would also die hard. 
On the 31st of October 1936, the Advertiser newspaper in Adelaide ran an article headlined Courageous Lone Voyages of the Ocean. It began, Somewhere in the stormy Tasman Sea, it is feared, the mystery star, the 16-foot skiff in which two courageous young men set out from Lord Howe Island intending to sail to Sydney, met with disaster. Two more adventurers who braved the sea, it would seem, have become its victims. The key phrases in this introductory paragraph were it is feared and it would seem. That's because the rest of this article was about men who'd survived in similar perilous conditions in small boats, turning up months after they'd been presumed dead. The article explained how small vessels could survive tremendous seas. It said that a properly designed, built and equipped small boat could live through storms if it kept moving through the water at a reasonable speed. Quote, Thus, when a huge sea comes along, she lifts with it like a cork, and if the sea is breaking, the boat recoils with it instead of receiving a tremendous blow. The article said the other decisive factor was human. Quote, but to successfully navigate the great expanse of the oceans, these boats must be expertly handled, and besides a good knowledge of seamanship and navigation, the lone voyagers who would dare the seas with only a shell of planking between them and watery death must have great powers of endurance, courage, and, most important, they must have the Viking spirit. The Viking spirit. The wording was striking because the South Australian papers hadn't yet carried anything about the next small craft voyage across the turbulent Tasman Sea. Gower Wilson had just taken possession of his brand new 32-foot motor launch and he and five crew were tomorrow to sail from Sydney for Lord Howe Island. Gower Wilson had christened his boat Viking. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the eight-part Forgotten Australia series, The Mysteries of Mystery Island. Part six will be released next week, but Forgotten Australia supporters can hear the rest of this story right now. To become a Forgotten Australia supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is in your show notes. Supporters don't just get early access to episodes, they also get bonus shows and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart, which is my biography of our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.